Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, England maintained their perfect start to Euro 2024 qualifying. Will the goals of the likes of Sackett and Rashford trump the skills of Grealish and Foden? And what did we learn about Trent Alexander-Arnold's new midfield position? The Tartan Army are celebrating after Scotland win in Oslo. Can they back it up against Georgia tonight? And what has made Steve Clark's side so strong at international level? We'll ask what the future holds for Wales boss Rob Page and discuss the managerial sackings of Gary O'Neill and Darren Moore. And it's goodbye from Woozy. This is The Game. Hello and welcome back to The Game podcast, the last of the season, the last hurrah, the last of the international football as well, uh, before a well-deserved rest. And the England players, some of them obviously enjoyed themselves partying with Manchester City, the rest spending that time in camp, honing themselves for the massive games against Malta and North Macedonia and coming through, what can we say, with flying colours, including Bakayu Saka scoring the first hat-trick of his career, England making it four wins out of four in the Euro. 2024 qualifiers they thrashed North Macedonia in front of a northern crowd at Old Trafford uh, well on course to qualify for Germany next summer in these two matches where England were healthy winners in both didn't concede a goal did we learn anything that's the question that I'm going to begin with I'm with Gregor Robertson Tom Clark and James Restall joins us to discuss England so James I'm going to start with you um, what do we learn over these two matches Uh, We learned that Trent Alexander-Arnold can play in midfield um, for England as well as his club. I'll disagree immediately. (laughs) We learned he can play play in midfield against Malta in North Macedonia. That's what we learned. You can only beat what's in front of you. And that pass for Saka's second goal, Saka was effusive about it afterwards and said at half-time, he told me I'm going to put it there. Uh, and And he said, I didn't even have to break my stride, Saka. It was brilliant, brilliant bit of skill. And I think it's these are they are sort of inverted commas competitive matches, but it's it's great to see England being prepared to experiment in these matches as well. And Southgate's been able to get a look at it in a in a fairly risk free environment. Um, when England play Italy in their hardest remaining qualifier, I think it's it's great that they've been able to get some patterns together and 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 play play in this way. So um, I think that is a good thing that they've learnt. I also think England have struggled in the last few years to relieve the burden around Kane and I think there is now genuine goals and goals all across this team. Saka took all three goals superbly. It was a brilliant stat yesterday actually. That's the seventh hat-trick that's been scored under Southgate, which is more than under any manager since 66. And it just shows that England are playing with freedom and they're playing with real hunger and they're trying to score as many goals as possible it was a brilliant moment yesterday where Gallagher had come off the bench and it was like 6-0 and he kind of makes a run into the box does a little back heel you know tries to kind of do a bit of skill and showboat and he just he loses the ball but he's just grinning and he's and it's like 
these these players are all enjoying themselves and this is a match that is you know the what 70th match of the season people were saying and and yet they all look like they were having a great time that's what we learned <laughs> <laughs> definitively uh, from James Restall um yeah, there are a few points to pick out in there. Um, we can go with Trent Alexander-Arnold. The enjoyment, the hat-tricks, yes, okay, I, I get it. Probably a better squad than we've had. More depth than at any point since 1966, most probably. And yeah, the joy factor as well. What, would, what do you want to go on first, Gregor? Don't ask him to go on joy, he's Scottish. For this. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm, happy, I'm a happy, happy laddie. <laughs> yeah, you, you've got your joy coming up, don't worry. I'd say a lot of these things are reminders. We knew that Saka was a star... And that England have like an embarrassment of riches up front and on the out wide goals from everywhere. The Alexander Arnold thing is is new. It's also new that we saw Southgate willing to even try it. I know he did briefly for a half and it was a bit of a disaster. But I kind of I'm kind of with you though, Hugh. I I feel that we need to see him against elite opposition. So the game against Scotland at Hampden will be good for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I've got like doubts about him off the ball. In that position, it's things he can learn, and I'm sure he, you know, will get the opportunity to learn. But you know, positional sense, uh, knowing when to snuff out the danger, that kind of thing, completely different to playing as a fullback. But you know, his passing range and some of these, some of the things he can do in the ball, we know about it. It's just he kind of gets an opportunity to to get on the ball in those sort of positions a little bit more frequently for England if he's playing in midfield. When he was playing as a fullback for for Liverpool, he did that anyway. It's just that. He really, let's be honest about it, he's moved into midfield with Liverpool because his, def- his defending's not good enough. So it's a possibly a glimpse of the future, um, but I, I think I'm with you. I think we need to see him against better opposition. He's still playing with Declan Rice and Jordan Henderson though, isn't he? It's that thing of where you'd think from the outside of a defender moving into midfield that they would move in there as a in a defensive role. He's actually moving in as almost the most attacking mm-hmm. of those three players, and that's what's fascinating to me is that it is that is almost your kind of as Gregor says the declaration almost that yeah he's actually not very good at defending is he Let's be honest, let's play him as the number ten, the most attacking of those three. So, and that's where I kind of I do agree with both of you that perhaps when we think about the future, think about bigger games, you're going to go well. Declan Rice has got to play, Jude Bellingham's got to play. Are we really going to stick Trent Alexander Arnold in midfield? Who knows? Who knows? Maybe we will. I do think it's also interesting in terms of some of those attacking players that you talk about, Hugh. Didn't really miss Raheem Sterling, did we? Anyone? It's a big, big season for him coming mm-hmm. up as to whether he's actually going to make that tournament. When you think about Foden and Grealish coming off the bench, Saka and Rashford, you know, I'd be worried if I was Raheem Sterling. Yeah, it's an interesting one on Sterling. Um, I d- again, it's depth. Like, ultimately, Rashford was out for a while. He started playing well, he got in. At least you know that's an option under Gareth Southgate because I think... You know, in years gone by, it might have just been a settled squad. You know, we had players who were tearing it up every single week who couldn't get into an England shirt because the manager had just, you know, picked a squad. These are my players and I'll stick by them. So, look, if Raheem Sterling has a great season, I think you'd imagine that Gareth Southgate would be more than open to picking him. It's just now up to, I guess, Mauricio Pochettino and the, and the style of play at, at Chelsea to see if it suits him, really, in the next year. Yeah, I, I, you know, apart from that, and, and you were right on everything you said, James, I, I didn't think there was much to pick out from England's matches. And again, look, the opposition weren't particularly strong. The only thing that I would say is, we kind of spoke about it going into these games, you know, can Gareth Southgate pick up something from Manchester City in the way that they've played? And ultimately, you know, a right-back stepping into midfield would be nice. And at least we saw Trent in a role where you thought, could we see that movement, if you like? But... um. 
again, it's it's hard to tell. And actually, I, the one thing I think we learn, and it's not really something that we learn about England, is they're not going to be tested in qualifying. And are we going to be back at the point where we get shell shots when we reach the tournament? Because that's what you're starting to think. These matches are not a test. Italy. For England. It's, different. it's a little bit different this yeah. year. I know it's one uh, game, innit? It's one game, innit? <laughs> do you reckon <laughs> do you that's what, what Southgate says in the things? It's one no, game, do, innit? Do you know what but, I mean? But like, even, the, like, I've written that the England drew with uh, Macedonia in 2002 and 2006. Yeah. Like, you have to also remind yourselves that this kind of ease and this comfort that <laughs> with which you just swat sides of teams aside. And this is a team as well who won away against Germany and Italy not that long ago. So, mm. yes, it's North Macedonia. And they looked awful. Yeah, you made them look awful. You're absolutely right. England, England historically have not beaten opponents with this ease and with this mar- these margins of victory since really it's only recently happened. Since about 2019 onwards, that England have been emphatically scoring goals against these teams and putting them away. Particularly in these post-season games, I remember a really nervy one against Slovenia I think where England 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 narrowly won 3-2 and you know and there was a game against Ireland in that in that run where I think there was a friendly and they drew one all and it was just it's really like you could say you could tell that the players didn't really want to be there they were not really up for it the the other thing that that we did learn is that is that players want to be there because Jude Bellingham was injured and he still turned up to yeah. St George's Park and still wanted to be and, a and and knew that he was about to sign for Real Madrid and about <laughs> yeah, to have the exactly, busiest week of his exactly. life and he still went. He still so, went. so really, your last point is maybe the more important one. Southgate has created an atmosphere that the players enjoy it because all of those results that you know we're talking about where England didn't play that well, particularly at the end of the season, so that's because all their best players were pulling out of squads for decades. You know, for a couple of decades there. You know, players would show up for the big games and, and not for the lesser ones, and, and we would struggle in them. And Southgate's done well in that he's played them all. You know, we're talking about Trent Alexander-Arnold and a bit of an experiment in terms of midfield, but look at the rest of that team. If that team was playing in a kind of competition quarter-final, you'd be like, that's a pretty strong team, you know, for the other 10 players in that team. I wanted to just briefly come back to your point about Manchester City, Hugh, because I do think it's interesting when, and I know they've kind of had Champions League and big party sessions and stuff like that, but... When you think about Saka and Rashford versus Foden and Grealish, say, I do wonder whether Southgate is starting to think that in international football and with Harry Kane, maybe pace and more direct play is more effective, potentially, than having Foden and Grealish. I'm not saying that's definitely what's going to happen. I'm not saying that Grealish and Foden are useless. I'm not saying they shouldn't be in the team. But if you have Saka and Rashford on form, pace, direct, goal threat, alongside Harry yeah. Kane it might be more effective so I'm just saying goal, it's interesting. goal threat is the key term there mm. I, I think ultimately you've got to look at it and think what's cost England you know they've played well they haven't put their chances away against France in the World Cup so do you just put more goals in the team and hope that you know let's be honest I've said it before the level is not particularly high so if you've got a team laden with people who can put the ball in the back of the net and you start to score higher bounds and you Listen, if you score three goals in international football, particularly at a tournament, there's a very, very good chance you're going to win that match. So yeah. if you can get your team hitting at least twos, you're almost there. You know, it, it's it's something that he does need to think about because as great as a player Grealish is, and Foden really, Foden's got more of an eye for a goal. But, in, 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 you know, in the international shirt, he's not scoring often and Grealish just isn't a regular goal scorer. If Rashford scores as many goals as he did last season, if Saka continues to get goals and assists you'd have to think that they would be in, at the front of that queue. Uh, look, I already thought for a while now that England are among the 
a small group group of teams who are going to be favourites for every major tournament. That's the that's the way you are now. It's, I know that's new as well. Mm-hmm. Like, let's be honest. So if we, we've spoken about this for a long time. It's just development, but it's, it's been able to maintain it because often, you know, it, people will question whether Gareth Southgate was the right man for, to to lead England forward. But there's been no sign of like a a major blip. And also, he's he's sort of integrating new players and the team. There seems to be you know evolution development yeah. as well. So I think it's all positive. I also think fascinating reading this morning that you know Southgate's next port of call is going straight off to Georgia and Romania to go and watch the under 21s in the um, in the in the Euros that they're in and you know there's a list of players there who are the next cabs off the rank that he wants to bring into the England squad and you know that, including players who aren't getting regular minutes for their clubs yet I, I don't praise him for this just so you know <laughs> he's like a member of the royal family I mean what else has he got to do for that much <laughs> for that much money as well get him of course he's going over there to watch it oh my god I mean honestly but you could do that but I th- but you could you could you could very easily do that from an office at St George's Park on a screen and or a sun lounger or a sun lounger <laughs> yeah. yeah that's true yeah I get what you're saying you know he, he, he could sit back but ultimately he gets paid the big bucks he should be out there you know, just say. So we're going to win Euro 2024 is what we've just decided. Is that well, what we're well, listen, this is the thing. Everything that we say, like, it's going to be boring for the next year to talk about England because they have everything in place other than winning. That's it. They've got, as Gregor says, they're in a group that even at the World Cup, let alone the Euros next year, you'd say they've got a good chance of winning mm-hmm. it. We just need to win. So all the conjecture on who should play, what positions. England are so good. And they've got so much depth. They've got so many options now that the only thing left for them to do is lift the trophy, basically. Mm. James Shaw, one of the most patriotic members of the Times Sports Editing Desk. Mm. Name on the trophy? No. <laughs> no, 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 no He's no, also one of the no, most pessimistic no, members of the no, Times Sports Editing Desk. No, because I support Leighton Orient and you can't be pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, no, because you can't... The, the, there's, so much, there's so much luck involved in these tournaments. I mean, you, you know, when the, the, we don't need to go back over it again, but... You know, the statistical modelling for that France quarterfinal showed that if that game had been played nine times out of ten, England would have won it based on the chances they created and the and the and the underlying statistics. And I know that people will be annoyed about that, but data modelling would suggest that England would have won that match. And the fact is, they didn't because they didn't take their chances. They missed a penalty, and then Harry Maguire lost his lost his man, and 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 France scored. You know, and and, and actually, what what I what was the most pleasing thing was that. There wasn't an overreaction and a load of introspection and going, oh God, England, why can't we get through these matches? And it was actually, well, no, it was, we played a good team, we lost. The only thing is, you know, after that game, there was a thing about, like, France are a team of winners. There's sort of something that intangible missing. But there's also sort of evidence with Bellingham going to Real Madrid, Declan Rice going to be likely to take a mm-hmm. huge move this summer, and also all these players gathering experience that you will even develop that. In the in the club game, so and with them all coming together, and well, we, we can't joined. say we haven't got winners now. Half the team just won a treble. Right. I mean, well, half the team. Well, I mean, one of the starters, John Stones, essentially. one starter. Yeah, John Stones, Jack Grealish. He's not. He's not, he's not, not getting. Not getting Kel Walker. I'll give you Kel Walker as well. Walker. But you you, know, you understand what I'm saying. You've got a lot of young players who are on a massive upward trajectory yeah, just now, yeah, and yeah. they're also doing it with England. So they've had that experience with the na- with, with the national team. They're gaining huge experience. You know, in I, I just didn't want you to do down, level. you know, Manchester United's League Cup or the, <laughs> or the West Ham's Europa Conference League for Declan never, Rice. Never, but the World, the, you know, the team that the team that got to the semi-finals of the World Cup in 2018 was 
massively inexperienced compared to the team now, which was the second most capped starting eleven ever for England last night. Oh, really? Yeah. 590 caps between them. There's been a lot of criticism about sticking with players like Harry Maguire, for example, but there is a group of players that are very used to playing with each other now and playing in part of the same team and part of the same group. Uh, and that, as, as much as a winning mentality, that familiarity will benefit them massively. It's going to be interesting to see how England move forward because I think we're going to see a lot of good performances from here on out and we're going to be back at the incredibly high expectation point as we go into the Euros next summer. <laughs> Greg is excited about first, it already. First team He's is justified. Excited. That's true. I'll remind you of that next year. Next year. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's talk uh, Scotland next. Late goals from Lyndon Dykes and Kenny McLean maintaining Scotland's perfect start to qualifying. They stunned Norway in Oslo. Um, Scotland top of Group A on their maximum nine points. They're six clear of Spain. You do have a game in hand. Eight in front of a devastated Norway, most importantly, I think. Scotland face Georgia tonight, Tuesday night at Hamden. A win would make them overwhelming favourites to see the place at back-to-back European Championships with four games to go. And it means that if they can win tonight against Georgia and beat Georgia and Cyprus away from home, then the games against Spain and the last game at home to Norway would uh, be irrelevant. They would be through to the European Championship. Let's speak to our Scottish football correspondent, Michael Grant. Michael, um, I think every Scotland fan is on cloud nine at the moment. They do need to back that up tonight, of course. When we talk about the game against Norway specifically, though, how fair was the victory in your eyes? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, Hugh, because to, to be honest, I think that uh, Steve Clark went there to play for a draw and he ended up getting a win. Um, it, it was a pretty defensive performance, um, certainly until uh, Erling Haaland put them ahead with a penalty. And, and to be honest, even then, he didn't change the formation. He explained that afterwards. He wanted to just stay in the game, not not concede again. And then he did change from a back five to a back four. He got players further up the park, John McGinn especially, a bit more support for Dykes. So there was a game plan to it, but it was, it was a cautious and, and pretty defensive game plan because a draw would have been fine. And um, for the whole thing to turn on its head the way it did in the last two or three minutes was, was remarkable, really, and um, you know dramatic and exciting and all the rest of it. It said quite a lot about the, the character and the, the, the spirit of the side, uh, and I, and I, I don't say that lightly. I mean, I think it would have been easy to just to just buckle there, and you know, end of the end of the season, the last game, this, the heat was un, un, unbelievable. And you know, they could have been tired, they could have been exhausted physically and mentally, but they dug in again and, and they, they delivered a, a fabulous result. Did they deserve it in your eyes, Gregor? <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, look, we, we were basically gifted the equaliser, and. No, Michael's right though, we didn't panic, there was no, it wasn't great adventure, but the substitutes made a big difference, Armstrong, McLean, obviously, uh, Billy Gilmore, no, players who were really technical footballers who came on and just started to maybe gain control a little bit more of of, uh, of possession and I just a few people, more people to get up and support Lyndon Dykes as well, and Lyndon Dykes, look, we just keep talking, I have to keep talking about this guy because he's transformed Scotland's fortunes, like... I can't imagine what Scotland would be like without him now because even when Jay Adams comes in he offers a physical presence and a bit more a bit more quality and sort of dynamism facing goal but the, the running and the the physicality of, of Dykes even you know obviously hurrying down and getting the get, getting the opportunity for the goal but what he did for the second goal in terms of just holding up you know 
Uli in the defender so the cross made it through to McGinn and then perfect layoff first time with back to goal brilliant like he, he's transformed them and you've got to give Clark credit as well for that because he seems to kind of you know he's picked he's, we needed a goalkeeper as well and he's found Dang, he's, he's taken he's persuaded I think it's gone he kind of he took Dykes recognising we need a striker he's persuaded Jay Adams as well there's something just about as well the the confidence of this group as well it's like we've spoken about it many times I don't know what Steve Clark has it's just something about how he's never flustered and I think that yeah. just kind of that's something that the players feed off and they, they, they've gained belief by his confidence and calmness yeah I, I did look at the Scotland's team and squad looked at the bench players that came on that you mentioned and kind of thought, you know, for international football, I was like, this is a pretty good squad. I mean, yeah, there are pieces that could be better. But, you know, even if you look at the players that aren't in top divisions, you know, there are very solid players at the level that they're playing at. The other thing that a lot of the players have now, Michael, is good experience. You know, they've yeah. played against very good teams. They've played against even, you know, the likes of Erling Haaland, nothing to be scared about. You know, we've been there, done it. OK, there are a few that, that haven't, clearly. But, you know, if you're looking at the wider context, you know, Andrew Robertson's not afraid. And Kieran Tierney's not afraid of going up against the likes of Erling Haaland. Been there, done that, for example. And, um, you know, the other players who, like you say, maybe aren't at the same level as, as those, they bring such t- determination, excuse me, to the the, um, the Scotland's team. that You're kind of like, this is a nice international team. I like it. So uh, I'm expecting you to to go to the Euros. And and again, I think what we're looking at now is a team that can go to Euros and maybe do something special. Well, there's a handful of players in the... Let's not get ahead ourselves. Sorry, sorry, I'd have to say that. (laughs) You know, know, I'm I'm encouraged by it. Like, I look at at Wales in 2016, I kind of see something similar emerging with the Scotland team now without without that clear world-class player difference. Yeah, there's a handful of players in the team that are, you know, between 40 and, and 60 caps. You know, they've, they've been through a lot together. They've been through a lot of lows, you know, losing the World Cup playoff to, to Ukraine and previous campaigns of, of failure. But they've been through highs as well, you know, the, the night in Belgrade when they qualified for the Euros, ending 20-odd years of uh, failure in, in tournaments. They've beaten Denmark, they went to Austria and win. They, they, they beat Spain in the last Hamden game and now, and now Oslo. And Gregor touched on it there about you know not panicking, and I think that only only teams that are used to winning and and, and succeeding uh, can really get that quality of not panicking. I mean that you know you're absolutely right. It, it, it was poor Nor- Norwegian defending that kind of gifted Dykes a chance to get in, but at one nil down with three minutes left, Scotland put a move together of about thirty odd passes. They moved the ball right across the middle, right across the back. It went back to Angus Gunn twice. You know they weren't flustered. They were kind of they were calm and composed and, and keeping the ball rather than just lumping it desperately, which they would have done in the past. And I think that that just comes from Clark's calm uh, mindset and, and it comes from a team that kind of believes in itself to, to get a result in the end. Now, to, to then score again was, was, was unbelievable, really. But, um, you know, all, all, of that, all of that comes from, from being a team that's uh, used to being successful together. How concerned are we then? I think Gregor touched on it slightly there about things tailing off Georgia tonight at Hamden so by the time you're listening to this maybe it has already tailed off yeah. but um, to think you know games against Georgia and Cyprus to put yourself into the European Championship I mean I know Scotland have the backup of the playoff as well but you would have taken it when you look at a group that included Spain and Norway Oh, oh definitely definitely yeah I mean listen the, 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 tonight has 
the ingredients of being tricky for Scotland. I mean, Georgia have only lost one game in the last 15. They are not pushovers. Um, and also, we have, we have in the past had a, rec- a track record of you know fo- following a, an excellent result with with an anticlimactic one, and, and we've done that against Georgia before. We played them in 2007. Uh, Gregor will remember we played Ukraine, beat Ukraine at Hamden, and four days later went to Tbilisi and lost. And nobody expected us to lose. Um, so you know there, there, there are warnings, but um, it really is one last push for Scotland tonight. This is the last game of the season. The rewards are fabulous if they were to win tonight. If they win tonight, they're sitting eight points clear at the top of the group. A minimum. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Now, Spain will have two games in hand, right? But Scotland will be at the halfway point of their group, eight points clear at the top if they win tonight. I mean, it's, 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 it's staggering, really. And, and it's exciting because um, this team has the feel of one that's going to the Euros. Absolutely. It does, Michael Grant. Appreciate you joining us on the Game Podcast. Following the road to Germany next summer, I'm sure it will be. Appreciate it. Well, for Wales, things aren't as rosy. Um, The Wales boss, Robert Page, says if his side are going to qualify for the Euros, uh, they must win all of their remaining fixtures. Defeat by Turkey... Uh, leaves Wales fourth in Group D. They also, of course, suffered an embarrassing defeat at home against Armenia in their previous match. Wales still have home games to come against Croatia and Turkey, as well as trips to Latvia and Armenia. But in my opinion, Rob Page has to be under pressure at this point, especially after a 4-2 defeat at home to Armenia at the weekend that just, in my eyes, was an unacceptable result. Um, But I also think... It's more difficult than Steve Clark in Scotland. I think he has better players to choose from at this point. But I also think that Wales should be performing at a higher level than they are currently. Yeah, I would agree. And I think it's interesting you talk about Page. We're going to talk about some uh, managerial changes in the next part of the show. But I, I almost think he should have been under pressure after the World Cup in a, in a strange way. And that sounds really strange, potentially, because you know, he got, got them there. It's fantastic achievement, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But... They were poor in the World Cup, I thought. They they didn't give a good account of themselves, as the mm. phrase goes. I mean, and I know I'm good friends with someone who went to that World Cup and whose family go and they're avid Wales fans and they've mm. been to these two games. You know, I was discussing with them, is this, you know, was the World Cup not a good time for a break, a change? You know, not just with Gareth Bale retiring, but also with Rob Page. You know, he'd done a good job, a brilliant job in getting them there. But, you know, Hugh, you followed the team as yeah, well at the yeah, tournament. Yeah. It, it didn't feel like, it, it felt like a team on the way down having got to the tournament already and so you then come out of that tournament into qualifying and it seems like there's a stagnation still there they changed the culture they had a brilliant culture from 2016 which was essentially you know we can perform above and beyond our means we can be the underdogs the great underdogs that was the kind of well story and they tried to carry the remnants of the previous teams into the World Cup, but lost that underdog feeling. In fact, what they were left with was a culture that was based on nostalgia. That's what the World Cup had changed their their whole culture to. It wasn't like, we're going to go out there, we're going to battle, we're going to put our best foot forward and see where it takes us. It was like, wasn't 2016 great? Haven't we had a great legacy? This World Cup's going to be a celebration of Gareth Bale and Aaron Ramsey and Joe Allen. It was like, okay, what about these games? And what about the future? And I, I argued that at the time, I was like, the message being sent to the young players of Welsh football was that, I, I hate to say it, but we aren't that serious about the results. 
Because if you were serious about the results, you wouldn't have been playing. And I know people could argue this, but Gareth Bell could not run at the World Cup. You were watching games and they were carrying him. And you think, okay, if you can just carry Gareth Bell, that's fine. But they were carrying Joe Allen. They were carrying Aaron Ram. They were basically going to, into games with one arm tied behind their back because so many of their best players were not fit and not at it. And it was like, listen, if you want to carry Gareth Bell, fine, but you can't then play the others. And every game they continued to. And I actually thought the last game against England was basically waving the white flag to continue to play those players. Ne- you know, needing a four or five goal miracle. I get it. But um, I actually think, look, you've seen the two games. You saw they couldn't perform. You saw they weren't at it. You still kept them in the side for the final game. I think maybe one of them missed out on the starting lineup. But generally, we didn't need to see Gareth Bale in that game, despite it being his great hurrah from the start. We needed to, again, try and make a miracle happen. I know, look, it's highly unlikely. But I actually think it was going to be even harder with the approach that he took. And the other thing was, now you come into the European qualifying campaign having sent the message out to your young players, the future of Welsh football, that you don't think they're good enough to play in the World Cup. It's like, I don't think the group is now filled with confidence or filled with the, with, with the idea that they can go out and perform above their... Because ultimately, you're Wales. Everyone needs to kind of play out of their skin for you to get big results. And they had a group that were doing that for quite a number of years. And then suddenly now you've got a group who don't believe in themselves. Mm. He changed the culture and made them lack confidence. And now, actually, what the hallmark of Wales' game since the World Cup are errors, mistakes, red cards, giving penalties away. No one is playing yeah. even the basics well, Like, and, and he needs to get a hold of that quickly. Do you think, Gregor, looking at that, we just talked about Scotland, do you look at the Wales team and think, oh, that's far worse than Scotland's team? Because as a, as a neutral for both, I, don't, I look at the two squads and think they've both got a couple of good players, a couple of potentially very good players but generally it's a mixed bag of quite experienced players at the similar level of you know championship to lower premier league isn't it i would argue that wales don't have a midfield like yeah, we, we are we're very well stocked in midfield yeah. which is you know they're playing ampadu and, and morel who's you know I, I don't think that they're of the level in international football and there's not a great deal behind them since no, you know no no but there's also an element of truth in that you, you see a team being greater than some of their parts, essentially, and that's what Wales were for a long time. That's yeah. what Scotland are now. It's kind of that magic formula that you have to get together, and they've lost it. I mean, I, I, to be honest, if you haven't got a midfield, you've got Kiefer Moore. Like in my eyes, you've yeah, got Kiefer, your strengths. You've got, then, yeah. you've got Kiefer, you, exactly you play to your strength. You've got Kiefer Moore, and you've got the speed of Dan James and Brennan Johnson. So, and you've got you know the likes of um, Harry Wilson. Wilson to support that. So there are good players there. It's just playing to your strengths. You know, wing-backs, fine. You know, you don't have two sitters, fine. But then go direct. And Connor Roberts can get up and support wide. Again, I don't think it's really a tactical thing. I think the group is lacking in confidence now. My issue with Rob Page is I think he has allowed that to happen. The players that were going to be there for the long term, he has not filled with confidence. It's always going to be a difficult transition, in fairness, when you're losing all these big stars that almost hauled Wales over the line to again, their the, first major tournaments but, and then the again, semi-final. That, that transition should have happened earlier. It should have happened going into the World Cup, not out of the World Cup, because the focus was not on results. The focus was on, this is the end of a beautiful era for we Gareth Bale. We argued about that at the time. I don't agree with that. I think well, they still, they still held the belief that Gareth Bale could produce the miracle. Well, are they blind? Well, clearly they were. But, and this uh, is the end but, result. But Gareth Bale been. had done enough done to, make, to make people... You know, right. To make it reasonable for them to still well, believe you, he might be able to do it. 
because he realised his legs were gone. <laughs> well, exactly. So he knows his legs are gone. Everyone else can see that his legs are gone. No one's arguing the fact that he's been an incredible player for Wales, an incredible player during his career. But the time had come to move on, and I think they delayed that transitional period until it hit them in the face with the European qualifiers. Because no one expected, let's be honest, you don't, you don't expect Wales to go to the World Cup, especially with the group that they had and do what they did in the Euros in 2016. It wasn't about, it wasn't necessarily just about the results, but it was about gaining the experience at that high level of tournament, moulding a team that believed in themselves. And they haven't done that. They've gone the opposite. They didn't care about any of those things. That's what I found, because you speak to the journalists and they were all saying, well, you've got to play Bell. You've got to play, you've got to play them. We need them. And I'm like, you guys are living in the past. Look at what they are. <laughs> no, but seriously, look at what they're producing, and tell me why they deserve to be out on that pitch. Because the World Cup was, in my opinion, not a high quality tournament. But the teams that did well, they had that togetherness. They had a set structure, and they played out of their skin. Croatia got to the semi-finals. They won once. Morocco, good, Arge- good Arge- at Penzo, weren't they? Let's be honest. Come on. No, but but Argentina. Won yeah. a World Cup. They, I get it. It's very, yeah. very different. We're heading, we're heading a bit what, too what, much into a World I'm Cup saying with is, you, aren't no, we? No, no, no. But like, what I'm saying is, it, it wasn't about, for a lot of the teams, it was about getting the result. Yeah. That's my point. And Wales were one of the few teams I watched the World Cup who were not all about getting the result. Yeah. Sorry. Northern Ireland. (laughs) (laughs) Northern Ireland. uh, We're not going to talk much about Northern Ireland. Um, Just one really remark on it. It was a it was a late one nil home defeat to Kazakhstan. A hugely disappointing result that really leaves their chances of going to Euros slim to none. Um, They had a two nil victory in their opening match of the qualifiers to the bottom seed San Marino, as you would probably expect. Since uh, then. Three straight 1-0 defeats. So they've got three points out of four games. Michael O'Neill obviously returning at the start of this campaign as manager. He was the architect of the joy that they had had in the Euros in 2016. It hasn't really gone as planned. And the question is really where they go now. Because the manager, you know, again, it's another group where the depth of squad isn't really there. The manager needs to find a plan. I think he's going back to, if you like, square one. I think the last three results of the inability to score a goal has put alarm on his face, essentially. Um, I, I would stick with him because I think it's going to be hard to find a better manager than Michael O'Neill to take that job at this point in time without a huge depth of talent. And I'm I'm kind of confident that he will have a plan eventually, but I don't think they're going to be getting to the Euros. It's incredibly difficult. You know, we just yeah. talked about Wales and Scotland and the you know the, our assessments of the squads and the players in it. Look at that Northern Ireland team. There's yeah. not a lot. I, you know, I know they're saying Kazakhstan, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but it's not a team blessed with talent, is it? At an international level. So, as you say, I would stick with Michael O'Neill yeah. and hope for the best in the coming matches. Stick with O'Neill for Northern Ireland. Bournemouth, unfortunately, haven't stuck with O'Neill. Let's do a bit of Premier League news. Gary O'Neill sacked by Bournemouth after less than seven months in charge. Uh, He won 10 of 34 Premier League games, guiding Bournemouth to a 15th place finish last season. Uh, Bill Foley, the Bournemouth owner, said it had been a difficult decision. And Doni Iriola is their new head coach. He signs a two-year deal in his first season in charge at Rio Vallecano, he earned promotion with the Madrid club from the Segunda Division. He guided them to the Copa del Rey semi-finals the next year. He spent three years with them. They were 11th in the top flight of Spain 
last year. He is the new man in charge of the Cherries. But let's go back to O'Neill's sacking, which for a lot of football fans uh, was a huge shock yesterday. Can anyone in the room understand it? Yes, I can. Well, I, I can and I can't, basically. I think this is one of these things that we're going to see more and more in modern football, more and more, particularly in the Premier League. And I say this as someone who last season predicted there would be fewer managerial sackings, so I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to flip that on its head and say there's going to be loads. It's going to happen all the time. I do think this is a kind of case of um, modern football supporters and the way that we interact with the game where all my friends yesterday were saying, how have they sacked Gary O'Neill? How have they sacked Gary O'Neill? And social media is awash with luminaries like the great Johnny Northcroft saying this is, uh, what did he call it? The stupidity biscuit. This takes the stupidity <laughs> biscuit, which I thought was a great line. But then equally, we don't ever get, say, well, what do Bournemouth fans think? And I saw quite a lot of Bournemouth fans saying, good decision. You know, brilliant, delighted. You know, he was great. He kept us up. But at the same time, we finished the season poorly. I think if we're going to kick on, it's a ruthless business. It's a tough, tough league. Stay in. Keep that momentum. Good to make a change. You know, and it ri- reminds me, the one that I always think about when we get these managerial ones is Lee Clark at Huddersfield. When he'd been on, they'd been on a record, like, unbeaten run, I think. But they'd drawn loads and loads of games. And I remember he got sacked and, you know, Henry Winter and every every journalist was like, this is how how have they sacked him? They've got them un- unbeaten run. And my uncle, who's a Huddersfield fan, was like, thank God for that. He's been useless <laughs> for ages. And I think they sacked him. I can't remember who came in, but then they got promotion, either the season after. And I do think it's this modern thing of where social media makes us have all these opinions about managers and players and things. But actually, if you ask the fans themselves, I bet there are a lot of Bournemouth fans who think, good decision. I don't know about that. Because although every club has lofty ambition, I think even Bournemouth fans would have thought staying in the Premier League next season will be a huge result. I don't think they would have come into the Premier League and thought, you know, if we finish 15th... It was a huge result. Once you've done it once and stayed there, then then the next thing. Yeah, and I'm sure Greg is going to make the point we we're not thinking of the one person who actually matters here. Exactly. I, mean, I understand this is, it's important what the Bournemouth fans think. Uh, it's a, you know it's, it is interesting that he's probably the to cause the most outrage since Nigel Adkins was sacked for yeah. Pochettino yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, you know, by yeah. the neut- from the, among the neutrals. Yeah. But the one man who really matters is, is Bill Foley. And and what you know, the interesting thing that jumped jumped out in, in Tom Allnett's piece about that although they finished eleventh and twelfth in in uh, La Liga, they were looking up, and it was the brand of yeah, football yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know the excitement and, and sort of. I don't know. It wasn't. It wasn't a kind of a, by the skin of the teeth, um, looking no, over their shoulder. No. They were looking and, and, they, and they are a similar club, if you like, to Bournemouth in that they were punching massively above their weight. And that's Foley's clearly hugely ambitious. We, we saw him spend a fair bit of money in January. I think they're going to spend money this summer. But also, they're building a new forty million pound training ground. They're moving the. They're going to. The plan is to build a new stadium where the training ground is. If anyone's been to the Vitality, it's literally right behind the stadium. Huge park, like huge park in in, uh, in Bournemouth. So he has plans, and uh, you know expects to. He he wants to kick on. He wants to kind of. You know, he references Brighton. Um, whether you know putting that into into action is the hard bit. Uh, but he clearly doesn't want to be surviving under an experience uh, an inexperienced manager who he acknowledged did very very well, and he did do very well. But there were kind of he's inexperienced and. There were some kind of questions about the football. Sometimes it was a, it was effective football, but then you can look oh, at no. the, look at the squad oh, as no. well. Was it effective football? Was it how dreadful? We saying that as if it was. I know, but this is what not the, a positive. I know, but when you're looking up and you want to look up and you don't want to be thinking about surviving, 
and that's ambitious for Bournemouth. I completely, I, I completely get that. But that's what his frame of mind is. It seems so. We, we might as well spell it out. That's why he's made the change. Yeah, and I mean, you referenced Tom Allnut's excellent piece on Iriola and any Bournemouth fan, and also any fan who thinks, you know, what, who who the hell is this guy? Why have they made this change? Should read it now um, on Times website. But Tom writes that it was far more about the performances than it was just the results. He says that Real defeated Real Madrid, Sevilla and Villarreal last season while in five meetings with Barcelona his team won three times and lost only once but it was more how they beat them at full throttle, harrying and pressing on the front foot, fearless with wingers flying, fans roaring and every player running their hearts out that for long periods has made Rayo the most thrilling side to watch in Spain I mean if you're a Bournemouth fan you're pretty excited by that prospect I get that but it was his third season in charge yeah, exactly. So, so that you're looking so at that it, as well. You have to separate these two can, things. What can you, you have build? to separate these two things. Absolutely, I agree that Gary O'Neill deserves the opportunity after what he did and the kind of huge promising signs that we saw in, this, in, in him as a manager to kick on. But the owner of the football club decided that he wanted to be more ambitious and this is what he thinks is the, the way to do that. Yeah, that's kind of what far more eloquent way of what I was trying to say at the start with the kind of fans and the you know the euphoria around the game. I think that can be true now. I think we can see managers change at the end of a season having done a brilliant job but it'll still be the owners being like, right, we move on. But didn't we have a similar fury this with is, when is, Brighton is, got rid of Chris Hewton? This is a cultural thing, I think, actually. Enough, yeah. It's a cultural thing. I think uh, American sports are like um, are more like what you just described. You know, you get to the end of the season, you reassess things. You think, yeah, you did a great job, but we think the, the team could do better, and we think we've got someone who could do better with the team. And it's kind of not a big deal. It just happens. A bit like player being sold. Um, and for us, we think if you hit your target, you should be there the next season. If you hit your target again, you should be there. You know, you shouldn't be getting sacked. Yeah, but it's about that target, target changing, isn't it? Though as well, for maybe Gary O'Neill's target was keep us in the Premier League. But maybe the target now is be the next Brighton and finish tenth between tenth and eighth. And but maybe... don't you think that a manager deserves the opportunity to do that if they hit the first target? Because that's how that's the visceral that's the emotional response that fans have given because mm. that they think okay if you do want to go to the next level that's fine. But the manager that you have has earned the right to give it a go. Yeah, I think that's a very good argument. And look, you're talking to someone who's the, the founding member of the David Moyes West Ham <laughs> Stay at West Ham fan club over here. And like, you could easy for pe- Bournemouth fans to be saying to me, "But hang on a minute, you said stick with Moyes and look at look at what happened there. Proved right." But uh, you know, <laughs> no, but it is a fascinating debate. And I'm not saying I fall on either side, but I'm just saying I can understand the logic. See, see, I think both things can be true. Moyes, yeah, is, think, Moyes yeah. is an interesting person to bring up because I think it would have been totally understandable if he'd got sacked because they lost 20 games. Yeah, well, exactly. You could, you, you, I think, and there are West Ham fans, I cite them a lot, that are good friends of mine, that I think they wouldn't have been up in arms. They would have said, thank you very much for one of the great nights of our, um, my life as a yeah. supporter, but I'm excited about who we're going to bring in, you know, Iriola maybe, or someone else. You know, I'm excited about that. That's what I think. I think we're heading down this route. And you make a good point about maybe an American sports culture thing of where... It's fine. You shake hands. Thanks very much. And but yeah. it's time. It's time to move on to well, something more exciting. And it Gar- won't Gary O'Neill. Work. Gary O'Neill has had an amazing platform here. He's actually been quite fortunate in that he was able to step in. He, he took the, most of that chance. But getting a, getting your first foothold in, in management in a, a Premier League club, he's in the shop window. He'll get a great job from this. Yeah, he'll be in the managers who get appointed in between January, February, and March next season to keep which, someone else. Up. Which t- which division? Well, I think he make, no, I think he could get a really good championship job. Now. That's what I think. Yeah, and if but if he's not in a job yeah. in the championship, he'll then get the Maybe. SOS call. Do what you did at Bournemouth and keep us, get us, get us to seventeenth, please. See, he doesn't have that glitz and glamour. I think that's what counts against him. I just think 
with the group of players that they had, what could they have expected him to produce? And if they're going to improve the group of players, then you say, right, we've given you more talent I, to I, work with. I don't think there is. I don't think there is. I think, I think you're making an interesting point, and it's a good hypothesis, but I, I actually think it's more simply on a limitations thing. And I think he did a brilliant job. As Gregor says, he got a great platform, but they did. They finished poorly. I think did they lose the last four games? Uh, yeah, they're already up. I mean, I don't think they were already safe. No, yeah. I know, but but still, you know, like a colleague of mine who's a Crystal Palace fan played them towards the end of the season and was like, they were one of the poorest teams we played in the back end of the back, you know, six months of the campaign. So I'm, you know, I'm just presenting all the different arguments here. I'm not saying I, know, I, I'm strongly wedded to one or the other. They also never wanted to give him the job in the first place. That's he, true. He kind of partly because they weren't able to get the right candidates. But then also because he did a great job yeah. in spells, it was like there were some spells where you thought they're doomed. In fact, everyone thought they were doomed probably just after the World Cup. I think they had a really, really bad run after the World Cup, and they turned it around. So, like, like there's no doubt he did a brilliant job, and I, I'm with you. He absolutely earned the right to to continue. But there are other reasons, uh, you know, other uh, circumstances at play in the appointment of a manager. The one thing to say, and we talked about it a lot in during the season with clubs like Southampton, say where they, oh, you know, we criticise them for a lack of a plan, and rightly so. You have to say with Bournemouth, when these managerial changes come and they came out of the blue yesterday, we're all on the desk and everyone starts shouting, "Bloody hell, Gary O'Neill's been sacked!" And then you read the statement and it says, you know, a successor will be appointed imminently, and then two hours later they've appointed him. So it is decisive action. It's not a, you know, a flippant. Ah, let's get rid of him right now let's start the hunt and all the odds start going out and it's going to be Graham Potter etc etc it was decisive they had a plan in place and they put it in motion and they've got a new manager in in June who can now build for the summer and build for the next season when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at bluenile.com you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It may not have even been the most shocking managerial sacking of the day, although we're told it's by mutual consent that Sheffield Wednesday parted with their boss Darren Moore less than a month after he got them promoted to the championship after a dramatic uh, playoff final at Wembley. He joined the club in March of 2021, led them to victory uh, in that playoff final against Barnsley. Dejfon Chansiri is the chairman of Sheffield Wednesday who has made some erratic decisions so we say over the course of time that he has been in charge. One of his better decisions, people thought, was appointing Darren Moore. They got 96 points this season. Yes, they lost the first leg of the playoffs 4-0 had a record-breaking comeback won the second, 5-1 after extra time won it on penalties to get to Wembley Josh Windass scores 123rd minute winner at Wembley incredible scenes amongst the Owls fans at Wembley. In fact at Hillsborough in particular during that playoff run as well. But they got, remember, 96 points during the season, which would have got them automatic promotion for many, many a year before that. And yet the manager has been sacked. With all the positivity that actually had come out of that period, in particular the players at the club, saying how much they had an affinity with Darren Moore. That was one of the huge things that came out of that playoff experience. And yet the chairman has still decided to part company. Now, reports are it's mutual consent due to disagreements over the quality of player 
needed to come into the club and how much money needed to be spent. Those are merely reports. I had the pleasure of seeing Darren Moore on Friday, who did tell me he had some important conversations coming up with the chairman on Monday and Tuesday. I really felt he was alluding to the investment in the squad for next season and some investment into infrastructure at the club rather than... Didn't get, it, didn't get an unhappy vibe, though. No, no. I didn't get the sense that he felt he was about to be sacked. And I and I, I actually did say to him, I was like, nah, surely not. I said it to... And he, do you know what he said to me? He said, after my experience at West Brom, virtually being promote, promoted automatically, having five games still to go, to be able to get that well within reach, he said, nothing surprises me in football after that. He said, that conversation at West Brom, having played for the club, was a two-minute conversation mm. when he got sacked. And he said, after that, nothing will ever surprise him in football again. So, in a way, he was prepared for it. But, you know, we were talking about plans for the new season and stuff like that. And and I definitely left that conversation feeling like he would be in charge next year. Yeah, I mean, you, you come back to your point, don't you, Hugh, about deserving the chance almost. But I do wonder with this incident, if you like, there's more of a kind of... I do wonder whether it maybe is a bit more mutual consent than perhaps you're suggesting because when you look at Sheffield Wednesday squad and you know I saw I saw them play a couple of times having played Lincoln in League 1 last season I don't think it was the strongest I think they did very well having a very strong and experienced spine of the team and having players like Barry Bannon to kind of carry them in big games and in big moments and Moore did very well at making them very solid you know we talked earlier about Scotland and international teams having you saying about having a plan you know, they strong spine to the team, didn't concede many goals, like very, very solid. But I do look at that squad and think that the championship's an incredible league these days. You know, you guys both know that, you both cover the cover that league. I do wonder whether more might have been saying we need quite a lot of investment here if you want me to have a proper crack at this. And whether that investment is there, I don't know. But I, and I do also think as well, he's in no bad position now. Similar to what Gregor was saying about Gary O'Neill, he leaves now, Sheffield Wednesday having got them promoted. And he looks great because also the narrative, there's my favourite word, just managed to sneak it in, <laughs> is that, oh, poor Darren Moore, I can't believe they've got rid of him. So from his point of view, he he leaves looking great. He's got up another promotion on his uh, You could say that, but remember the situation that he left West Brom in on the verge of promotion. I get it, they, had a, they did have a, a bad run, but it's still within their grasp. And ended up at, at Doncaster next, if I'm right. And that was in League One, wasn't it? Yes. Yes, yes. So he didn't even get a championship job off the back of that. So... You know, this idea that he's going to hurtle up to the top of the championship after a good no. season in League One doesn't necessarily hold. Yeah, he looks great and all of us are kind of sitting here saying how sad for Darren Moore and he deserved better, but ultimately football doesn't necessarily work like that. I think he would get a good job clearly in League One because he got 96 points this season, but he should be probably coaching at a higher level, at least in my opinion. The one thing you can say is he's been an absolute pillar of strength for that club in like really yeah. tumultuous times. I remember being at the game... The kind of survival Sunday or Saturday was against Derby County. Do you remember that? Because he was actually at the club when he took over when they had you know points deductions and they were battling to stay surviving the championship. And he got off his deathbed basically after having pneumonia after COVID, and turned up on the final day. And my God, the margins were fine that day, and you know Rooney's Derby came out on top. But then even you know uh, done an amazing job in in League One and with lots of kind of real financial constraints and Chan Siri look again we're speculating Chan Siri who knows what Chan Siri's thinking here maybe he's maybe he is making he's not willing to make the investment that Moore feels the club needs maybe he's 
thinking I'm going to I'm going to go all in again. Who knows? Maybe he's going to roll the dice and and hire someone that's a bigger name and start spending a bit of money in it to try and gamble again. He's been pretty erratic as as uh, owner of Sheffield Wednesday, so I think it'll be interesting to see who follows him. Definitely, we shall see. Anyway, commiserations to Gary O'Neill and Darren Moore. End of the season. End of a long, long road on the game podcast. Time to tell you, in short, that I will no longer be with you on the game podcast from this point out. So it's my opportunity to thank you all for listening. You just looked at me across the microphone. I genuinely started welling up then when you started (laughs) looking at me. Honestly. Uh, As I do at the end of each and every podcast, I do thank you for listening. But genuinely, this time, from the bottom of my heart, thank you all for listening. Well, save, save, hang on. Don't save, save your little emotional spiel yet. We're not letting you off that lightly. We've, um... Gregor and I have obviously got some thoughts, but I'm sure we'll share with you in a second. But as you say, it's been wonderful, wonderful having you as the host of the Game Podcast for the last three seasons. So much so, there are two very special members of the team who couldn't be here today, but have sent their thoughts to you, and starting with Johnny Northcroft. Hey Hugh, the man who's always upbeat and positive, except when discussing his beloved Manchester United (laughs) or Gareth Southgate, in which case things are never quite good enough. We'll miss you, Hugh. Um, it's been a great pleasure sharing time on the podcast with you. I've enjoyed your personality, energy and wit you've brought. It's been fun discussing Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in particular with you uh, <laughs> and all other matters, football, all the best. Look forward to listening to you on the 400 other outlets that you still broadcast for. All the best from Johnny. Wonderful word Very there nice. from Johnny Northcroft, but not quite as eloquent as I'm sure you would be predicting as Alison Rudd. <laughs> there was a broadcaster named Hugh who led the footy writer's crew. His nickname is Woozy. Ten Hag calls him a doozy. His absence, all of us will rue. Beautiful stuff Lovely. from Ali Rudd. Beautiful stuff. And another perfect little feature for a podcast. We've got you a leaving page. Oh. We've got you a game front cover. But to try and make this at all funny for listeners, I'm going to read out some of the features that are... So there's a picture of fine-looking Hugh with a very angry-looking Jose Mourinho on the front. That was one of your great uh, battles, if you like, in the game podcast. It was. Never saw the light of day, either, the conversation with Jose Mourinho, so well worth it. Less less said about that, the better. But um, we've got some features in this special souvenir edition. Alison Rudd says, Good riddance, now my Liverpool lovings will go unchallenged. Gregor Robertson says, please get me on the EFL show, mate. I'm sick of working with Tom. <laughs> uh, in this special souvenir edition, we've got Hugh Speaks and Speaks and Speaks and Speaks. My plan to fix Manchester United, a 90,000-word essay. Yeah. <laughs> we've also got uh, What on Earth is a Port Vale, a feature that reveals how Woosencroft used knowledge from his podcast colleagues to land a TV job covering the Football <laughs> League. Thanks, Gregor. Yeah. Appreciate it. Uh, and we've got a Bill Edgar Stats special. How many times did he miss the train? Listeners, that you will yeah. never have known this over the last three years. At least one out of the two each week. One out of the... T- I mean, most of them, mate. We've barely, we've barely started a podcast <laughs> on time, have we? Let's be honest. How many times did he say pep and overthinking in three seasons? I'm saying at least a thousand. Uh, and how many different fixes did he concoct for VAR? Find out inside this special souvenir edition. So there you are, mate. Thank you. Thank you Thank very, you very, very much. much for all your hard work. I, I will miss it. your succinct and eloquent critiques of the modern game. Rants. Well, you know. <laughs> yeah. I didn't, I, you know, but yeah, we'll miss you. I'll, I'll miss falling out with you over Gareth Southgate as well. It won't be the same without. I'm you. on Team Gareth now. Oh yes, the, my work is done. I know it's changed. I it's, should have got you a Southgate shirt, shouldn't I, rather than a leaving page? Yeah, yeah, it's changed drastically. No, I listen. I've loved it, and you guys have become great friends of mine. And I've, you know, it's one of the great parts of my week to come in on a Monday morning, speak to you all, Tony, Alison, everyone that's on the podcast. Really, get so much 
great insight and obviously as you know I love talking about football so much that it's become a career but um, it's one of the great things to do very fortunate to be in that position I've loved it so much and for everyone that sent us positive comments during that period of time thank you so much for everyone that sent negative ones thank you even more because <laughs> that's the motivation to try and improve so yeah I'll still be around and absolutely if you're a talk you're a TV fan, star now yeah exactly you're, you're, a TV too, big, star. you're too big for us now and mate. That, that little joke I'm, like, I'm being serious get me on the EFL show <laughs> <laughs> there is there is there is nothing better though than these conversations and, and radio in particular so TV is never going to be the don't let them say that mate no, be... it's okay <laughs> it's okay with a baby with a gut like this TV's not going to last forever for me anyway. oh come on I promise if Man United happen to win the Premier League in the next couple of years you'll be straight we'll, we'll get you straight you. on I thank promise thank you very much we'll miss you mate thank you thank you uh, it's been a pleasure uh, thank you all for listening to the game podcast we'll be back or these guys will be back uh, with you in August I think just before the start of the brand new season so we'll see you then enjoy your summers enjoy your summers